and guests and regulars, we're so glad to have you here this morning at Austin Oaks Church. I uh, hope you had a great morning. My name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here. And I'm excited to tell you we kick off a brand new series today uh, called What's After ATX. Uh, for you non-Austinites that are tuned in, ATX standing for Austin, what happens after our life here in Austin? And there are dozens of churches across our city uh, today that are kicking off this series as we look at uh, the overwhelming medical and scientific evidence for near-death experiences and, and how do we explain them and, and how people who are actually have been shown to be medically dead yet are experiencing some out-of-body experience that cannot be fully explained by medical or scientific evidence. So these are not experiences by pastors or, or simply religious people. These are medically documented experiences by people across various religions, across different regions of the world, uh, even people of different cultures and religious beliefs uh, that are experiencing these things and have commonalities between them. The series that we're going to start is going to examine these stories, the evidence for them, and then we're going to take a look at uh, some of the religious writings and what they say about the afterlife and how they compare uh, to what these medical doctors and people are reporting in their experiences. There was uh, four guys hanging out in a coffee shop, uh, and one of them just said, hey guys, you know, we're all going to die here at some point. Well, you know, as you think about your life, uh, what do you want your friends and family to say about you at your funeral? One of the guys piped in right off the bat and said, hey, you know, I I've worked really hard in my career and, and made some significant contributions in my field. I really want people to honor me uh, for the things I've done in my career. Another guy jumped in and said, you know, uh, my family is probably the most important thing to me. I hope people recognize me as a great family guy, uh, someone who really loved his wife and his kids and, and poured his life into them. Another guy was a great athlete, and he just said, I, I hope people just remember all the records that I set and the games that I helped win. That was really important to me. And the fourth guy just kind of sat silently uh, through it, and they quickly then kind of turned to him and said, hey, you know, wh what about you? What, what are you thinking about? And he just turned and said, you know, I, I hope they, they see me and say, wait, he's still breathing. <laughs> Anyways, what's funny is we all are going to die. The problem is uh, none of us ever want to talk about it. It's a bit ironic that we're all going to experience it, uh, but we rarely want to talk about it. We're going to talk about it in this series and over the next several weeks, uh, you're going to have an opportunity to see various things about these near-death experiences uh, that are common and how they relate to some of the religious teachings. Uh, I got to start today, though, with a couple honest confessions. Uh, when we first were presented with this idea, I was pretty skeptical about it. I've read uh, several of these uh, near-death experience books that have been out on the market about people you know, who've had these experiences. Some of them seemed reasonable. Some of them seemed really phenomenalized and just kind of strange and didn't really correspond with some of the things I thought might be true. And it just seemed like they were trying to use these experiences to sell books. Uh, but the honest truth is, as I examined it more, uh, it really kind of impacted me uh, about what I was thinking about. Another confession I have for you, too. I haven't always believed the Bible uh, to be accurate about everything that it teaches. 
Uh, I became a, a believer or a follower of Jesus between my junior and senior year of college. Uh, and my undergraduate and graduate degrees are both in physics. So my background is science. And so I had a lot of questions and things that I wasn't sure were accurate and couldn't make them kind of fit together between my education and what I was reading in the Bible. Uh, but one of the things I've since learned is that I need to sometimes suspend my presuppositions uh, and, and objectively examine things both in the Bible and science to really come up with what's accurate and what's most plausible. You see, both science and the author of the Bible have presuppositions. And presuppositions aren't bad. Uh, you just have to know what those presuppositions are because if your presuppositions are incorrect, it will taint everything that you see. So here's what convinced me to think differently about this series. First, the author uh, of the book that it's based on, John Burke, uh, on the book Imagine Heaven, uh, John was not setting out in this book to validate any one person's story. That's not his goal in writing the book. In fact, he has intentionally minimized the stories of people who stand to benefit from sharing their near-death experience, or NDE. Secondly, he sought to, to really gather the common experiences across several thousands of these NDEs and find out what people reported and what was actually researchable. So he's looking across thousands of these events and looking at just the common experiences between them. And thirdly, he's included people from all walks of life. Uh, that's what's interesting. All walks of life, all religions of the world, all regions of the world, all cultures, even people who were born blind and have never been able to see in their lifetime report some of these things. See, his goal was to provide unbiased and broadly spread evidence to see if these NDEs have commonalities across the board or if they are highly influenced by a person's upbringing or culture. So I don't know where you are today in regards to this whole topic, but I'm fine if you're a skeptic or a cynic or even a, a critic of these things. That, that's okay. But here's my heart for each of you as we engage this series. If there is scientific evidence for an afterlife, and if there is a religion in the world that has already described this afterlife, then I hope that you would temporarily suspend your presuppositions and consider the ramifications for your life. Now before our defenses go up and we think that believing in the afterlife is gonna require me to change how I live you know, right now, uh, let me provide you with a little analogy. I don't know what your major life struggle is. Uh, it may be your finances, uh, it may be a health issue that you're wrestling with right now, maybe it's just some relational things that you have going on in your life. Uh, I don't know what it is. Let's just, let's just say that it's a relational issue that you're struggling. That's been a key issue in your life as of late. If I could promise you that if you implemented a, 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 just a few relational principles into your life for this next week, just this next week, that if you were to implement those principles, that the remainder of your life you would experience the most phenomenal relational peace that you've ever experienced. Uh, would you be willing to implement those principles? 
Now, I know, I know what you might be thinking. You're thinking, okay, sure, Chad, you're going you're gonna to ask me to implement these principles and they're going to just be so painful and horrific. I mean, I'm going to have to do this for a week in order to experience absolute relational bliss for the rest of my life. Uh, I don't think you'd say that. I think you'd probably go, man, if I could implement some principles for a week that would change my relationships for the rest of my life, uh, why would I not consider such an offer? Even more so, would you see me as a mean or a cruel person asking you to implement these principles for a week so that you could experience incredible relational peace for the remainder of your life? I don't think so. So I'm going to ask you to go on this journey with us And I want you to approach this like I'm approaching it today from the vantage point of an investigator. Uh, Let's pretend we've come onto the scene of these situations, of these experiences, of these individuals who have uh, claimed to have these near-death experiences. And, And whenever you're examining a situation, if an investigator comes onto the scene of a crime, uh, there's a method by which they gather information. Science isn't always Uh, how they're able to solve cases. In fact, it's rarely how they're able to solve them. An investigator uses something called abductive reasoning. And abductive reasoning is a method they use that it gathers all the evidence, all the correlating evidence that goes along with the situation and then leads them to the most plausible explanation for why something happened. All the evidence on one hand and then the most plausible explanation on the other hand. For example, what experiment would you use uh, to conduct if you wanted to prove that you love someone? There is no scientific experiment for that. And that's similar to why you'd use something like abductive reasoning. You can't prove uh, something scientifically. There's lots of things we can't prove scientifically. But you can reason towards the best plausible situation. So here's four questions that we want to answer today as we jump into this series. And we'll answer a a number of these as we go throughout this series. The first is this. What is current medical evidence for life after death based on near-death experiences? What is the current evidence? We're going to look at some of that today, and we're going to listen to some testimonies from people, not just who have experienced it, but from medical professionals who were skeptics. Secondly, what do the major religions of the world say about these common experiences? If religion is true, if there is a God uh, and an afterlife, then maybe someone's given us more information about this than we realize. So we're going to examine some of that. Thirdly, what does the Bible tell us about life after death? And then lastly, who says the Bible is accurate? So those four questions we want to take a glimpse at today as we kick off this series titled, What's After ATX? So the first one, what is the current medical evidence for life after death as we have gathered from near-death experiences? That's a lot of of what this book, uh, Imagine Heaven, is written about. Lots of evidence for it. So let me read to you some stories about doctors that you can research yourself and what they've said. Listen to how cardiologist Dr. Mike Sabum describes what changed his mind about these near-death experiences. Before talking with Pete and scores like him, Sabum says, I didn't believe there was such a thing as a near-death experience. 
Pete told me he had left his body during his first cardiac arrest and had watched the resuscitation. When I asked him to tell me what exactly he saw, he described the resuscitation with such detail and accuracy that I could have later used the tape to teach physicians. Sabum says, these people like Pete Morton saw details of their resuscitation that they could not otherwise have seen. One patient noticed the physician who failed to wear scuffs over his white patent leather shoes during open heart surgery. In many cases, I was able to confirm the patient's testimony with medical records and with hospital staff. John Burke, who's the author of Imagine Heaven, talked to Dr. Sabin. He said he studied NDEs to refute them. But Sabum said, I wanted to see if it would pass scientific muster. It did. After five years of research, he said, I published my findings in the book Recollections of Death. He also published his findings in the Journal of the American Medical Association, or JAMA. Another radiologist and oncologist, Dr. Long, read Sabum's findings in JAMA. He found it hard to believe until one night at dinner with friends, Sheila mentioned a food allergy that once made her code. Her heart stopped. Dr. Long decided to probe. Did anything happen to you when you coded? Hesitantly, Sheila said, yes, I found myself at ceiling level. I could see the EKG machine I was hooked to. The EKG was flatlined. The doctors and nurses were frantically trying to bring me back to life. The scene below me was near panic situation. In contrast to the chaos below, I felt a profound sense of peace. I was completely free of any pain. My consciousness drifted out of the operating room and moved into a nursing station. I immediately recognized that this was the nursing station on the floor where I had been prior to my surgery. From my vantage point near the ceiling, I saw the nurses bustling about performing their daily duties. After I watched the nurses a while, a tunnel opened up. I was drawn to the tunnel. I then passed through the tunnel and became aware of a bright light at the end of the tunnel. I felt peaceful. She said, after I passed through the tunnel, I found myself in an area of beautiful, mystical light. I was in a realm of overwhelming love. And in this realm, I know I was truly home. Finally, I returned to my body. I awoke in the ICU over a day later. I had tubes and wires all over me. I could not talk about my profound experience. Since then, Dr. Long has collected and scientifically studied thousands of accounts from around the world. And he concludes this, by studying thousands of detailed accounts of NDEers, I found the evidence that led to this astounding conclusion. NDEs, or near-death experiences, provide such powerful scientific evidence that it is re reasonable to accept the existence of an afterlife. So don't take my word for it. Don't take these people's words for it. Listen to some of these people for yourself, including Dr. Long, former skeptic and now founder of the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. Watch this and their testimonies about whether these people were truly dead.
everything in my body started shutting down. According to the medical records, it was an hour and 45 minutes that I was not breathing or heart beating during that time frame. I knew that I had been underwater already too long to still be alive. The people who resuscitated me would say I was underwater 30 minutes. They would say that I was dead. The nine wheels of the driver's side of the truck just rolled over the car. So I was just really killed instantly, blunt force trauma. They pronounced me dead on the scene. So how do we know these people were truly dead? Doctors, cardiologists, uh, oncologists have actually been able to look at medical records to show, yeah, these people were truly dead by all the ways that we would clinically talk about death. As to how long I was clinically dead without brain function or heart function, at least 30 minutes. Because of not having oxygen to my brain that long, I should not be able to function like I'm functioning because I didn't have any brain wave at that time. That fact that the near-death experiences are occurring during that time that consciousness should be a blank slate is medically inexplicable. It should be impossible for them to be remembering anything. You may say I didn't go to heaven, but you can't say I didn't die. So you've heard from them some of their experiences, not just people who have been through these experiences, but also medically trained doctors who have now gathered evidence, enough evidence to say that their only good explanation they have for this is that there must be some kind of afterlife. So that was our first question. Uh, the second one follows on its heels is what do some of the major religions of the world say about these common experiences? What do they say about these common experiences? In John Burke's book, he accumulated 40 different common experiences that these near-death uh, experiencers experienced as they were going through it. So over thousands of people who reported and they researched these experiences, he came up with a list of 40 different experiences that seemed to be common across the board, regardless of their religion, regardless of the region in which they grew up, their cultural upbringing, uh, any of those things. These 40 things were common. I want to show you a chart right now that compares those 40 common experiences with five of the major religions in the world. So examining this chart, you can see each of the little boxes represents those 40 common experiences that are experienced by people who have had these near-death experiences. And then going down the left-hand side, you see the various religious writings uh, of our major religions in the world, from Tibetan Book of the Dead, uh, to the Islamic Quran, to the Hindu writings, the Zoroastrian uh, writings, and you can see at best those have five correlations of things that they teach that correlate to these 40 common experiences. Yet the Jewish and Christian Bible has 38 common explanations of things that these people say they have written. So what's the evidence? The evidence on this one is pretty clear. Uh, the Bible best correlates with these medically researched NDEs. And what's our plausible explanation for that? That maybe the God of the Bible has revealed facts of the afterlife to us. So that's the second one. What do the major religions tell us? So if the Bible says so many things about this, our next question should be, what does it tell us about 
after de- life after death. What are some of the things we can learn from it? We're going to examine many different scriptures throughout this series in the Bible that talk about the afterlife and correlate them with these stories and the scientific evidence of these stories that we're hearing. But today I want to look at one passage in particular and talk about one aspect that we heard a little bit about and we'll see throughout these NDE experiences. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote a whole chapter, chapter 15, talking about the resurrection, this idea that both Christ who is resurrected in our faith, but how that implies that we too as his followers will one day be resurrected, that there will be an afterlife and what it'll be like. And in this section that we're going to look at in chapter 15, he's talking about our bodies. An objector has come to Paul, just like we have objectors today, and said, wait a minute, how can we possibly be resurrected? Because the Greeks thought that the physical body was evil, and Jewish people didn't believe oftentimes that this body could be resurrected. So there's lots of disbeliefs during their times and objections, and Paul is addressing it uh, from the point of view of what does God actually say about this particular topic. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 35 and take a look and see what this passage teaches us. Paul says, But someone will say, How are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? You fool, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. As for what you sow, you are not sowing the body that will be, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain, But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each as seed its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. There is a splendor of the sun and another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So Paul's talking about this new body, and he's talking about our misconceptions of, wait, how can this body possibly pass into the next life? Because a lot of people of his times, both Greeks and Jews, struggled with that concept. And Paul was telling them, this isn't going to be the body that we take with us into eternity. And then he goes on to give multiple illustrations that God has given us in his creation for what's going to happen. Just as a seed is planted in the ground, and if you look at a whole box of seeds, a variety of different seeds, they all kind of look the same, and there's not a whole lot to them. But once you plant them into the ground, when they blossom, when they grow, you get totally different things based on what that seed was designed to become. And Paul is using that illustration. God is giving him that truth to help us understand that the body we will have when we are resurrected is very different from our current body. And in fact, our present body has to die before our new body can be given us, just like a seed has to be planted in the ground. So the first thing we learn from this is that our eternal bodies will be different from our earthly ones. That's what the Bible teaches us. And it teaches this pretty extensively in this chapter and in others. More than any other religious book in the world, the Bible gives specific details about what our bodies are going to be like. 
and even comparisons. And Paul is doing that here in nature the best way we can possibly explain it, is saying, look at all the different types of bodies that critters and, and plants and even uh, objects in the heavens have to best suit what they're designed for. Every one of them has a different body or an, uh, what basically encompasses the being uh, that has been created. And, and Paul is explaining that to us, and the scriptures teach us that. As you move on, though, we're going to see that not only will we have different bodies, but those bodies are situated and suited specifically for our needs. As we continue in verse 30, 42, it says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. It's sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, and it's raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Let me explain this a little bit to you because this is a concept that's used throughout the scriptures and Paul speaks of it frequently in both Romans and here in 1 Corinthians of Adam's. As uh, the Bible teaches, the first man was Adam, Adam and Eve. And so he's talking here about that, the beginnings of how all of us come from that first original man. We're all made of dust as God formed him from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him. So he's kind of the first one that all of us descend from. Adam sinned, we've all sinned, we all follow in his footsteps. But he talks about a second Adam, the second representative of humankind that's a life-giving spirit. And there he's using that as a metaphor for the person of Jesus Christ. He does that elsewhere in the scriptures, that God sent a new man to represent humanity that didn't come from the dust of the ground. He was sent from heaven as God's very own son took on human flesh and now is a new representative for humanity. That's what he's talking about here. However, he says the spiritual is not first, meaning we don't start in our spiritual eternal bodies, we start in our natural ones, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, speaking of Adam. The second man is from heaven, speaking of Jesus. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have born the image of the man of dust, meaning just as we've all followed in Adam's footsteps and all of us are going to die, all of us have sinned, all of us follow that pattern, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Meaning as we trust in Jesus Christ, we will then be formed and conformed into his image and become like him. And Paul concludes with this, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Here's that section in a nutshell, and there's a lot more we could dive into in that passage if we had time, but here's, I think, the heart of it, is our eternal bodies are perfectly suited for the eternal world. That's what Paul's teaching us. These new eternal bodies we will have are perfectly suited for that eternal world. They are, our current bodies are corrupted. They're broken. That's why we die. It's the effects of sin in our lives. And we might think that death is a curse, 
And in many ways it is, but it's also a blessing. It's a blessing from God that these bodies die because if we remained eternally in these bodies, think of what that would be like. We would be doomed to sickness for all of eternity. We would be doomed to all the problems that plague us in these present bodies. But God in his goodness has allowed this dying body to be passed away and a brand new eternal one that's not corrupt and that's perfect to be what carries us into the next life. It's not a physical body just like our current body. It's a spiritual body, but it still has its boundaries and it still will define us as humans as we see as well. But it's perfectly suited for an eternity without sin, without pain, and without corruption. And that's the most accurate and clear teaching of any of the religious books on what the afterlife looks like. They're going to be perfectly suited for that time. So you might ask at this point, as I asked, I asked this question and, and have looked at it a lot in my life as I was wrestling between my science background and what I was reading religiously is, who says the Bible's accurate? I mean, how do we know it's true? And that's a great question. And it may take many years for you to come to, uh, to grips with that whole truth. And that's okay. That's not the most important truth about whether the Bible is accurate or not that what's more important is that the Bible is the only religious book that's based on the historical resurrection of its leader. It's the only one. Of all the other major religions, every other leader is dead. You can go to their grave. You can find them there. But Christianity is the only one that's based on the historical resurrection of its leader. And there's lots of evidence for that as well. In fact, uh, in a book I'll show you soon uh, by Gary Habermas, writes on the case for the resurrection. And these are actual facts. You can research these things for yourself. The majority of scholars believe several facts about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. These are facts that even skeptics, even scholars that reject the general truths of the Bible, believe these things historically. The first is that Jesus lived. Okay, that's a, a given fact. Even though we can't prove it scientifically, we have all kinds of evidence that shows historically that he lived. The second is that Jesus was crucified. They all agree on that as well. Skeptics and believers agree. The third thing they agree upon is that the early followers believe that he was resurrected. Okay, they, they, they may not think it's true, but all these, all these skeptics, all these uh, scholars, when they go back and look, they actually all agree on the fact that these early believers, the people that were written about in early on, they all really believe that Jesus was re- resurrected. Now, they might think they were deceived, but they all think they really believe that he was resurrected. The fourth thing they all agree upon is that thousands of people came to believe this during that early centuries of Jesus' death and lived in such a way that proved it despite being persecuted. There are lots of historical writings that are outside Christian circles that record the acts of Christians during that time. And even uh, the Caesars that threw them into the lion's dens and watched them be tortured for their faith. There's all kinds of historical evidence. So all of them will tell you that there is thousands of people that were transformed by whatever happened in that moment, so much so that they were willing to risk their lives for it. 
And lastly, they all will agree that many witnesses recorded seeing Jesus alive after his crucifixion. Now, they may not believe those witnesses, but all of them will agree that many witnesses said they saw him. And Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 15 said that there was over 500 people who actually witnessed Jesus after he was resurrected. So what are the possible explanations then? If these facts are all true, how do you, how do you explain this? How do we know that Jesus was really resurrected? Because the whole Bible really pivots on that particular truth. Uh, if Jesus didn't fully die and was resuscitated, that's what some will purport, that he didn't really die. He was just resuscitated afterwards, after three days, and came back to life. Uh, but some questions you have to ask is, how in the world would he have gotten out of the tomb? There's historical evidence for what tomb he was laid in and the stones that they would roll over him, as well as the Roman guards that were put in front of it. How would a person that had been that brutally beaten possibly resuscitate himself, move that stone, and get past Roman guards? It doesn't seem uh, really likely or plausible. It's possible, but is it really plausible? I mean, would his early disciples risk their lives for someone who just straggled his way out of the tomb but hasn't really victoriously conquered death? Would they change from being guys that were scared to death and were hiding at his death to suddenly being motivated to even give their lives for someone who just crawled out of his tomb on all fours, barely making it? Uh, what about people who stole the body? That's another common one. But again, how did they get past the Roman guards? Uh, that was a, a death sentence if those Roman guards were to not fulfill their role there at the tomb. How would they possibly get past those guards? And if they did steal the body, uh, wouldn't the best way to squelch all these believers that the Roman leaders hated that were coming to Christ and telling people that he'd been raised from the dead, why wouldn't you just present the body to everyone? Why don't you bring it out in the streets and show everyone that Jesus was still dead? That would have squelched that incredible revival and change in people so quickly, but no one could do it. It's possible, just not plausible. Lots of people, you could say, have radical beliefs that aren't true. Maybe it was just these earlier followers that had all kinds of radical beliefs themselves, and, and people all, all around are doing radical things uh, about, for beliefs that they have, things that they actually believe are true. But here's the interesting thing about that. Most radicals, act on things that they actually believe to be true. They may not be true, but in their minds, they believe them be, to be true. They've been passed down to them, and they're acting based on what they believe to be true. If these disciples didn't see Jesus rise from the dead, if they stole his body, then they were acting on something that they knew themselves was not true, that they knew was a scam. That's totally different than a lot of radicals that we see today that are doing their actions based on something that they believe to be true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then those disciples would have known so. And what would have radically changed them? Even more so, why would all 11 of them give their lives for him? Would not one of them have, have said, hey, hey, I'm out. I know this is a scam. I'm not going to perpetuate it anymore. In fact, why would thousands and thousands of people after them risk their lives for something that they knew full well 
wasn't true. You see, the most plausible explanation is that Jesus rose from the dead, and he is the author of near-death experiences and the afterlife. There are two books that teach this and and give a lot of this evidence uh, very clearly. One of them is by Gary Habermas called The Case for the Resurrection. I'd encourage you, if you're a, a skeptic or you have questions about this, that's great. I'd encourage you to challenge those questions and read a book like this Case for Christ or Case for the Resurrection. Another great book that comes from a man named J. Warner Wallace. He was a private investigator and an atheist who set out to disprove uh, Christianity using uh, evidence that an investigator would typically use when they come across the scene. And he studied the Gospels, looked at witness accounts, looked at all the research, and ended up becoming a Christian because of his discoveries. And he tells that story in his book called Cold Case Christianity. You see, what other leader of any religion, including science and atheism, has made claims about what does or does not exist after life and has claimed or actually risen from the dead? What other leader? Not one. And what evidence or plausible explanation is there from someone who has never actually been there? I mean, why would you believe someone that's never actually been there for a plausible explanation? I mean, if I told you I was the absolute expert and authority on New Zealand and traveling to New Zealand, but I had never been there, nor even claimed that I had, would you be hesitant to believe me that I was the expert that I am? I think you would. So let's get down to the heart of this. What doubts do you have about the afterlife and a God who wants you to be with him in that afterlife? What are your doubts? Can you answer that honest question? And I want to ask you to do one thing today. Just You can do this in your head. You can do this whenever you want. You don't have to share it with anyone. But I just want to challenge you to one thing today, and that's to doubt your doubts. Yeah, you heard me right. I want to challenge you to doubt your doubts. We all have doubts, and so often we believe our doubts without question, and it leads us astray. You know, I wouldn't be married today if I didn't doubt my doubts that my wife would ever date me. You know, I wouldn't be in ministry today if I didn't doubt my doubts that any seminary would ever allow me uh, to attend there. I wouldn't uh, be a follower of Jesus Christ today if I didn't doubt my doubts that any God could possibly forgive uh, someone who's done the things that I've done in my life. Unfounded doubts often dominate our lives and strip us of truth and blessings. So what do you say? Are you willing to doubt your doubts for the next several weeks and honestly look at the evidence and the most plausible explanation for the next few weeks? Here's my commitment to you. You can email me or you can fill out a connection card. Both of those will be coming up in the chat 
uh, area right now, you go ahead and email me personally or you fill out a connection card. And if you have questions about either of these things that we've talked about today, either of these books, I will send you free of charge either one of these books. You just fill that out. You email me personally. I want to help you walk a journey that I've walked myself, doubting a lot of these things, being a skeptic about them as well, and finding out that there truly is a God who does have an afterlife that he wants you and me to be part of. Here's another uh, opportunity for you. We have some excellent discussion videos that touch on six of the most common experiences that NDEers uh, experience. And you will hear from their stories in these videos. Experiences like meeting friends and family in the afterlife, the incredible beauty of the afterlife, the, the most loving being they've ever experienced in that afterlife, and even some that talk about an incredibly hellish-like experience in that afterlife. These videos uh, are, are videos that are designed to be watched and, and discussed and engaged with several other people. If that's something that would interest you and you want to be part of something like that, again, just let us know on that connection card. We would love to help you in this journey. And we aren't afraid of doubts. We aren't afraid of skepticism. Uh, I've faced it myself. And I believe that if you will suspend your presuppositions just long enough, to seek out the truth, that you might just be changed in a way you never possibly believed. People, this is an unprecedented time, and it's stretching all of us. So there's a, a spot in your communication card to, to share a prayer request with us uh, if you want to do so. Uh, go ahead and click on that connection card. Uh, let us know. We pray about these things every single week. We want to help you wherever you're at uh, take a next step in your journey with Jesus. And I want to ask you, and I'll close in our prayer here in just a minute, and then we'll have our final song and a, and a children's skit. But I want to ask you, um, is a few weeks of your time investigating the reality of not just these near-death experiences, that's not the point of it, but investigating the reality of a God who has planned an afterlife for you and for me, is spending a few weeks examining that a worthy investment for something that could impact your life forever. I pray you'll come on this journey with us and find out for yourself is there really something after this life? Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we all have questions. We all have doubts. We all are skeptical about various things in our lives. But if the truth be told, Lord, uh, it's often because we don't have all the evidence. We can't have all the evidence. Or maybe we just haven't taken the time to truly examine all the evidence. Either way, Lord, we come with presuppositions and, and predisposed beliefs that we have, um, but often don't allow ourselves to truly look at everything that's presented in an objective way. So, Lord, my prayer would be that as we walk this journey these next few weeks and look at these different experiences, um, that we don't get hung up on individual experiences 
but we just ask ourselves, what exactly does this mean? And more importantly, what does it point to? If people are having these kinds of experiences that medical doctors cannot explain, but are affirming must have happened, then should we at least ask the question, is there an afterlife? And if there is, how do I find out more about it? And what is it going to look like for me? Lord, that's my prayer for all of us as we walk through this journey together. And Lord, I pray that you will open hearts and minds to see the bigness and the goodness of who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.